Hey, booches. Oh, were you sitting on that all week waiting for us to record? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I like it. I'm into it. <laughs> this is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And speaking of beauty, here are your ghostesses. That is Corinne. Hey. And I'm Sabrina. Here we go. Here we go. Another week, another haunting. Oh, yeah. Lots of hauntings. I actually had nightmares because of my haunting. And I also had a nightmare that I woke up and was about to record and I opened my research and it was gone. That's a true nightmare. Hours yeah. and hours of research. Gone. <laughs> right before we record. But we're good. It's here. Okay. I have it. So my roommate, who I called Jill from HR, her mm-hmm. company, some people were, some of her coworkers were at my office doing some shopping because I work at a place where you can do some shopping, I guess. But I went up to them and they were being brought around by some of my coworkers to see like the different items that we have. And I was like, oh my gosh, hi, I'm Jill's roommate. And they immediately were like, wait, the one with the podcast? And then the other <laughs> girl goes, oh my God, about ghosts. And I was like, yeah, and we just started talking about it. And then the next day, all of my coworkers who were there when I went up and said hi to these people were like, uh-huh. wait what is this thing about ghosts that you do? They had no idea. (laughs) But some of them do, don't they? Because you wrote Ghost Girl on a note and someone knew who you were. Yeah, there's a a select few who do, but... Now everyone knows. One of our salesmen, I don't think, thought it was the coolest thing he's ever heard. He looked (laughs) a little confused and a little nervous. (laughs) And now he's sitting in his office listening to Two Girls, One Ghost all day, every day. He's like, damn it, I haven't done any work in two months. Yeah, right. If he listened, that's when I would die and I'd haunt everyone. Because <laughs> it would never happen. I have something. Well, we have something to announce. And I figured we'd do it in the beginning. I like how you're like, what? I, what yeah, is it? I don't know what we're announcing. <laughs> we have new merch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We do. We have two awesome things. The first is a shirt that's a, well, there's a bunch of different options, but the design says, trust your pets. Mm -hmm. And it's by Mallory. And if you want to find her on Instagram, she's at Art of Mollery. And we'll post it on Instagram as well. But it is so cute. It's a little design. It's so cute. Yeah. With like a cat, a dog, a pig, a lizard, and our fruit fly. It's perfect. It's everything Mm -hmm. we wished for. Yeah. I love it so much. Love it. And then we also have way back in the day when we first started getting sponsors. They were, I think, one of our first, if not our first. I think they were our very first sponsor. Their name is, well, it was Design My Soap. And they just changed their name to The Mad Optimist. And we partnered up with them and they created a lip balm, a full size lip balm for us. That's It says two girls, one ghost on it. And it's like a peppermint flavored. It's all natural ingredients. Yeah. If you guys remember when we were sponsored by them, we were obsessed with their products. Yes. So it was only natural that we were like, hey, should we do chapsticks together? Mm-hmm. And like all of their products are all natural, 100% vegan and cruelty free and sustainably sourced. And also you can still use the Design My Soap or Mad Optimist promo code. So you can use the TGOG promo code to smell spooktacular and design your own soaps. But uh, yeah, we partnered up with them and have this awesome lip balm that you guys can order from our big cartel store. So excited. So it's excited. So great. Make sure your lips are all buttery and smooth after all of the screaming you do when you see ghosts. 
or in preparation for all the screaming you'll do. Yeah, or maybe you'll feel a little like smoochy smoochy with Andrew Ranson. You got to prepare. <laughs> you mean you need to prepare? Yeah, Bigfoot, Andrew Ranson. <laughs> I think I need to date someone because my choices are becoming a bit unnatural. What do you mean? Bigfoot and a, a dead pirate from 300 years ago. Oh, you mean like literally unnatural. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just have high expectations, Corinne. And I don't think that's an issue. Oh, thank you, Sabrina. Thank you for your support. <laughs> You're welcome. You'll find something and or someone, some creature that's perfect for you and you won't see it coming because it's a ghost. God, that would make me so nervous. <laughs> I'm cleaning out my room again. I'm doing like a little spring clean and more Marie Kondo. <laughs> I was going to say, didn't you just do this? Yeah, but it's a process. I have to continue doing it mm -hmm. because before I avoided doing under my bed because it's hard to pull the bins out. So I was like, ah, I don't want to get sweaty. <laughs> so now I'm finally doing it. <laughs> but is that the real reason or was it an excuse not to do it? It was a it was. No, that was like genuinely the real reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wasn't overwhelmed by the idea. Like I just really didn't want to use my weak arms to try to pull the bins out from underneath my bed. <laughs> it's fine. But anyway, I was like, oh, I'm going to tidy up. It's going to be so great. I'm going to create all the space. And then I was like, wait a second. If I create space underneath my bed, then that means something can hide and lurk under my bed without me knowing it. So I'm, I'm yeah. going to tidy up inside of the bins, but I'm going to keep everything because i don't want any empty space um i'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you this but i don't think that matters because i think if a creature wants to get under your bed it's gonna get under your bed similar okay, to how well, perhaps a creature but what about people like an intruder would not be able to fit right okay that that's fine my fears extend beyond just the paranormal oh right right real people you know our everyday life Last night I came home and Nick's out, out of town tonight or last night. So I was, I came in to our apartment and I see Leia kind of like in a place that she's not typically in. And I was like, immediately I was like, someone's in our apartment. I'm going to die. And then I was like, well, I'm just going to start singing really obnoxiously. And hopefully that lures them out and is like, okay, I'm done. What was your song choice? Well, I had been listening to Falling Slowly in the car. And so I just kept singing that. And I was like, I don't know if I know that song. Can you give us a, give us a lick? Uh, you're putting so much pressure on me. Do you forget how the song goes now? No, no, no. Well, yeah, I forget everything. I don't even know what my name is now. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll send it to you later. It's a really good song. <laughs> I'll send it to you later. Don't okay. put me on the spot. Don't make me do a podcast. Don't make me sing. <laughs> I was actually thinking about our live shows that are coming up because we have one in Boston, mm -hmm. we have one in Nashville, and we have some other ones that are in the process of being scheduled. New York is legit. We can announce New York. Shall we announce it? Yeah. Okay. Okay, you go. You do it. New York is announced. We're going to New York. We're going in September. In It's July 14th. Oh, I said September. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of September of going. It's uh, July 14th at the Gotham Comedy Club, and we don't have a link yet, but we will send it to you when we do. Yes, it's a 8 p.m. show on Sunday, so if, in you, if you're in New York, around New York, please come. Please, please Please come. come. My whole family's going to come. Just come. Help us. We're scared. My family's going to come, and it's my sister's birthday that Friday, so it was perfect timing because now I'll be able to celebrate her birthday with her. Oh my gosh, that is perfect timing. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's fun. And you know what's fun is that we're doing two shows where our families can go because my family will be going to Boston. Your family will be going to New York. Are you going to drive from Boston or are you going to fly? Uh, Maybe I'll take the train and be all Harry Potter oh, and do so cool. some, you know, work on my computer and pretend wow. like I'm a person. A businesswoman? We are. We are businesswomen, Corinne. Don't sell yourself short. I know, but I never feel it. When do we feel established? When do we feel like adults? You know, that's my question. Does anyone, do you wake up one day and you're like, I'm a freaking business person. I have my shit together. I know what I'm talking about. It makes sense. I fit the part. Uh, I feel pretty much like a boss lady most of my life, but I get what you mean. I don't feel like a businesswoman. I feel I just feel like a boss like of my life. Wow. Well, that's I'm glad that you feel that. I feel like you should feel that. You're a very impressive woman and you've accomplished so much. I don't. I feel more like a I feel like a gardener without a garden. That's <laughs> you, what okay. I identify with. If that's your metaphor, you have the biggest freaking garden out there that people come and tour and it's luscious and it's full of life and it has animals running around. That is the garden you have. You just don't see it. Yeah, I understand that it did sound like a metaphor, but really I'm thinking that I really want a garden <laughs> and I don't have one. So Don't you have those plants? Didn't you... Send a picture of those plants you have in your windowsill. I do. I have Frankie Muniz. He's a bird's nest fern. And then I have a philodendron as well. And her name is Patricia Arquette. So, And then we also have Beyonce and Gail, who are the succulents. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of Patricia Arquette, have you seen The Act? Have I seen what? The Act on Hulu. It's about, what's her name? Gypsy Rose. It's that whole story. And Patricia Arquette plays the mom and is amazing. It's called The it Act. It is so good. It's called The Act. It's on Hulu. And if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, you might recognize it from Mommy, Dead, and Dearest, which mm-hmm. was the documentary, right? Yes, on HBO. And so they made a a fictionalized sem- – I mean, it's based on the true story, obviously, but it's more dramatized, and it's on Hulu. There's only two episodes out, and in an act of massive procrastination, I have watched them. Here's my thing. When someone takes a real story and a story that I almost feel passionate about, Mm -hmm. maybe for lack of a better word, but one that I was really into it and I know a lot of the details, I don't know how I'd feel having like a spinoff. Like I didn't watch Dirty John. I didn't watch the TV show because it bothered me when people were talking about the TV show who hadn't listened to the podcast or actually done any research on the real case. And they were taking, they were talking as if what happened in the show was actual fact when obviously in scripted television some of it's going to be spun differently and that bothered me i think they do a really good job of of staying true to the story and what i love about it is in the documentary and in all the research you do you hear the story or you hear the aftermath you hear the story from the point of like you know you hear about it from the point of after it's happened Mm -hmm. whereas the act shows it in a way that i don't think you typically see it because you start from the beginning and you watch these characters. Oh, you see the buildup. You see the abuse. Exactly. And obviously okay. it's fictionalized, but I think it's a, a format of storytelling for that specific occurrence in a way that you wouldn't hear it on a podcast or in the documentary, etc. Okay. Well, you've convinced me. I'll give it a go. It's, it's good. Are you ready to talk about this scary, spooky 
a topic. I'm so ready. I'm so into my topic. But who goes first? Is it me or you? Well, it's me. But first, we have to say that this episode was actually chosen by a Patreon donor. Her name is Ashley. She's a mama of the BEKs. So she's a fierce woman boss lady. She's the boss lady. She's a business lady. And she's a mama of a BEK, which makes her even more boss. So she wanted us to do haunted churches, stories of spooky, ghostly nuns. And she actually gave an example of a Haunted Places episode that did a story about Kloster Unterzell. And I decided to also do this story and give my own interpretation of said story. I'm actually shocked that you chose this just because it's a little difficult to say the title. Yes. And I've avoided saying it after this point. In the Wait, story. what did you say? Kloster Unterzell? Unterzell. Unterzell. But it's, Unterzell. I think it's pronounced with like a C. So we hate possession, correct? It's like scary. I think so. I would question who doesn't hate possession. That's maybe fewer hands well, to be raised. the devil. The devil and demons like it. But anyway, one possession story is like scary enough. Just the possession of one person. But what if I told you that this story involved the possession of over 10 people all at once? Whoa, a group possession? A massive group possession that happens over a long period of time. Is there a term for that? Like possession orgy? <laughs> um, and it The is devil's now. orgy? Ooh, the devil's orgy. That sounds like a beautiful plant, doesn't it? Oh, I thought you were going to say a beautiful play. I was like, I bet it is a good play. We could make it a play. Let's do it. All right. To add more to your writing schedule and all the homework that you already have. I just want to procrastinate everything else. So, Well, the Devil's Orgy is coming <laughs> soon to Broadway. So New York, July 14th is our live show. Immediately following that, we will be running over to Broadway and performing off, the Devil's Orgy. Off, off Broadway. And they are literally coming. <laughs> So this is the story of the possession of 10 nuns. And it starts during the 15th and 18th centuries. We've discussed the persecution of witches on our podcast before. And similar to the Salem Witch Trials, which we talked about in, I think it was episode 11. And you talked about the witches of Canudon. Do you remember? No, I really don't remember anything we talked about, to be honest. Okay. It was the one that where you go on Halloween, if you go around the church 13 times or something, you will like oh, yes, disappear. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. Um, okay, so that was in Europe. And I decided this week with this story, I'm going to take a deeper dive into European countries and some of the accusations they made in persecution of witches and, and how they executed people for witchcraft, heresy, and Satanism in Germany and all of Europe. So we have to take a trip back in time. Okay. And we go back between the 15th and 18th century. And when we go back in time, please don't bring anything witchy because you will then be um probably accused, accused of being and executed did you know that in i think it was like the 18th century men banned lipstick because they said it had the it had magic and it would lure men into marriage without their consent just because of lipstick please yes please they also thought that about chocolate too they thought chocolate had some magical powers that made both men and women crazy because it's freaking delicious that's why and no one has self-control. Doesn't it have, there's like something in it that does kick up your, well, maybe it's just the sugar and it makes you like, woo, hyper. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. I should know. When I was in Switzerland, I did go on the chocolate tour and learn <sighs> all about the history. And that's the only yeah. thing I came out with was they thought it was magic. <laughs> <laughs> 
So somewhere between the 15th and 18th century, it was a time of massive persecution and it was happening all over Europe. It just there were tens and thousands of people executed for witchcraft. So it's imagine the Salem witch trials on a massive scale. Mm hmm. And what used to be a belief in magical power for good quickly turned into the belief that people were using magic for bad. Because there was a long time in Europe, and we've talked about this in multiple different episodes, like one of the queens even had a magical sorcerer who advised her. But then it all of a sudden turned into this like, oh, witchcraft isn't this thing that's good. And they're all doing bad things with it. They are cursing people. They're making people ill and they're causing all the crops to fail. And so basically they were taking any issues that they were having during that time and accusing witches for causing it. Which people still do today. It's just now instead of calling people witch, our new term is using people as our scapegoat. Yes. Yes. So we haven't really evolved. No. Yeah. We like to put blame on other people rather than taking blame ourselves, which is very unfortunate. So yes. So they thought all these people were doing the work of the devil. And as we know, with all of these stories, a lot of the people who were accused were never actually involved in witchcraft or had were just completely innocent people who were not doing bad things. And it's horrible. And a lot of the people and like, you know how the CIA or like there's like torture interrogations that torture people and make them confess and mm-hmm. how they've done studies where it's proven that after torture, people will say anything. Right. To you get just want to stop. Right. So these witches between the 15th and 18th centuries were tortured. And of course, they then confessed to being a witch. These witches were being sentenced to death by hanging or by burning. And the witch hunts continued for years all over Europe and Germany. And the last trial to ever happen in Germany is this story of Kloster Untersel and the nun whose name is Maria Renata. So again, Haunted Places did do an episode about this, but this is the Two Girls, One Ghost rendition. (laughs) Maria Renata was born in the year 1680 in Munich, Germany. And when she was about six or seven years old, she went to go live in this neighborhood called Linz. It was a town famously known for witchcraft. But was it really or was that just part of the the witch trials in Europe? Or we don't know. Or will we? We'll come back to it. Keep it in your head. Okay. Okay. So when Maria was 19 years old, she was forced into the convent of Unterzell. And it's this beautiful convent where women committed themselves to God and found a deep connection to religion. And the nuns at Unterzell were like, oh, wow, Maria, you are a woman of prayer and you're very good at your job and you love God in a way that we have never seen before. You are so committed and it's wonderful. And guess what? We are going to promote you. So she was promoted to sub prioress, which is basically the second in command at the convent over so many other women who had been there for much longer than she had. Because she was a boss lady. Yes, she was. She was remarkable and God chose her. Yes, her garden was filled. She was a gardener with a garden. (laughs) So yeah, so she has this role for 50 years. And so she's like nearing 70 almost. And she's really over this time, like truly committing herself to this role. And so it's like 45, 50 years later and something something strange begins to happen at the convent. Something horrifying. It seems like out of nowhere, this darkness swallows the convent. And all of the nuns were very fearful, but they couldn't understand why. They'd walk down the halls at night or even during the day, and they'd always feel as if someone was following them. And this is a place of religion. So it's like 
it truly should be the most peaceful, blissful place. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, everywhere they go on this property feels dark. They all start feeling anxious and depressed. Then they, they were just like, well, let's just pray more. We just need to pray to God and have him protect us and save us. But things only get worse. And these women all start experiencing very strange symptoms like swelling in their stomachs, pain in their hearts and throats. And some of them were even starting to experience convulsions. Ooh. And occasionally these symptoms turned into violence. And nuns began denouncing anything sacred, denouncing God. It was this mass hysteria that no one could explain. Which that's so scary because those are the people that you're supposed to turn to right. when something is going bad. So if they themselves couldn't handle what was happening, then you know you, it's right. It's way worse it's than what we bad. could ever imagine. So we obviously know that this is the start of something dark. And at night, all of these nuns started having horrible nightmares and they'd wake up feeling like something was watching them. And guess what? There was. In the 1700s, there was a nun named Sister Cecilia Pistorini and she was sleeping one night and had this horrible nightmare. She was tossing and turning and it was scary and frightening. And all of a sudden she springs awake. She feels like something's watching her. So she starts scanning the room and her eyes meet the corner. But there's something there. In the corner is a tall, lurking shadow figure. It's staring at her with bright red eyes. Cecilia obviously was horrified and she told whatever this entity was to leave her alone, but that only encouraged the entity. And for five nights in a row, she would have the same experience. Horrible nightmare, waking up with shortness of breath, turning to look at the corner, the creature staring at her every night. And then she tries to confide in our friend, Sister Maria Renata, about this creature, but Maria only punished her. What? Maria! I know. But Ah. Maria's like, Cecilia, you're telling lies. Stop lying. You're just trying to get attention. So she forces Cecilia into prayer. She forces her to her knees and tells her to pray. And so Cecilia kneels down and begins praying for hours. And when she would stutter or stumble over her words, Maria would whip her and tell her to continue. Okay. I was a fan of Maria about three minutes ago, but now I'm not. (laughs) Yeah. And so finally, Cecilia finishes her prayer and she's broken and tired and exhausted. And she goes back to her room. And the next day, Maria says, Cecilia, you you have to go and attend tend to the farm. So it's like a community. So they have all these different you know, they're self-sustainable. And so Cecilia is assigned more duties, more chores. And so she goes to tend to the barn where the cows and chickens are. And Cecilia is in the barn and she's milking the cows. And all of a sudden, an angel appears to her. And the angel tells her that she was chosen by God to root out evil from the convent. They told her that she was special and to hang on, that this was all worth it because God chose her. And all of a sudden, Cecilia feels so relieved and she's like, all of this was worth something like all of this pain and all of the shadow figure and and all of these things. She's being targeted because God chose her and she finally feels relieved and she's doing God's work and God noticed it. And so she feels this blissful sense of peace and she's like, "Okay, I'm doing what is right. I can handle all of this. Mm hmm. And so now she feels even more connected to God and she goes to prayer with the rest of the nuns. And 
During prayer, she she finds herself not saying the prayer with the other nuns, but she opens her eyes and kind of looks around at all the other women who were praying together. Something overcomes her and she begins cackling. She tosses her head back and begins laughing in a hysteria. And she has this mania in her eyes. And all of the nuns go silent and look at her. And Cecilia is waving her arms around, laughing hysterically. It is unlike anything these women had ever seen. And Maria grabs her and drags her out of the chapel, horrified and terrified and angry, furious at at Cecilia. And so Maria throws Cecilia into her room, locks the door, and yells at her for the outburst, telling her she must pray for forgiveness or she will go to hell. And in that moment, Cecilia looks up to Maria, and there's something strange, something unnerving about the way Maria looked. It's as if Maria's eyes had gone black, that there was no Maria in the woman standing before her. There was a darkness and a fiery rage within Maria's eyes. And it was then that Cecilia realized Maria was enjoying punishing her. And it was also the moment that Cecilia realized why there was such a darkness at the convent and why a shadow was watching her at night. Maria was a witch. Oh. But what could Cecilia do? Because she was already exiled from the convent. She had this crazy outburst in front of everyone. So everyone else thinks that she's gone mad and lost her marbles. She was already seen as this black sheep. Like she was outcast from the rest of the convent because of everything that had been happening and the lies that that everyone thought she was spinning. And so she was afraid to confide in anyone. She had no one to talk to about it because she didn't want to be further seen as an outcast. And the other nuns didn't want to be outcasts just like Cecilia had been. Mm -hmm. So Cecilia keeps to herself. She does her chores. She prays. She keeps her head down. And she asks God for guidance. Like, if God chose me, then why is everything so difficult? How am I supposed to rid evil from this convent without his guidance? And she prays to God and asks for his help and tells him that she just doesn't know how to complete the task that he chose her for. And so one day... She is tending to the chickens and she is praying to God, asking for his assistance. And she gets up, she turns towards the door, ready to leave. And all of a sudden, the door that was once open slams shut. There's no light coming into the barn. She is consumed by darkness. She runs to the door feeling very overwhelmed and scared and and horrified because all of a sudden she's in darkness. There's this weird sense of fear. And all of a sudden she notices the chickens are no longer making noise. They've gone still and silent. And so she feels like she needs to GTFO right now. So she runs to the door. She starts pulling at the door, but it's locked, which is not possible to do from the inside. So that means someone outside locked her in or was some force holding it shut. That's what I was thinking. Something was on the outside Mm -hmm. just holding the door shut. And so then she's she's pulling at the door. She's trying to get out. She's kind of screaming and having a fit. And all of a sudden, the sound of the chickens returns. So she turns to look and the chickens are sprinting towards her as in full attack mode. And they begin pecking at her legs, biting her, climbing on her in a way that animals don't do, except for that wild turkey that did chase me when I was seven or eight. And she starts screaming and... And they're just attacking her in a way that 
it's there's obviously some force forcing them to do it because chickens don't get together and form an army like that's just not that's not a thing that happens and so she finally gets out of the barn and she collapses on the ground and starts sobbing and apparently she passes out and one of the nuns finds her and she has wounds all over her body is bloody she's passed out so they bring her to the infirmary and lay her down she starts having visions and she's still in the infirmary and she's having these crazy visions she'll start cackling randomly and she has horrible cramps where she starts screaming in pain because of them and it's just all of this is making all of the nuns obviously concerned and they're like what is going on And poor Cecilia is like, why would God do this to me? I thought he chose me. And that is when Sister Cecilia Pistorini realized it was not an angel that appeared to her that night in the barn. It was the devil. Yes. Fallen angel. And so it was then that she tried speaking out to the other nuns who were watching her and taking care of her. And she was like, she's like, I'm possessed. I know it. The devil, the devil has taken me. And, you know, she's having these moments of sanity and then these other moments of just convulsions and fear and something has consumed her. So in the split moment that she comes through, she's like, I've been possessed. And so all of the nuns are like, okay, we need to do something. There's clearly been a darkness and now we Mm -hmm. know where it's coming from. Cecilia has been possessed. One night, all of the nuns gather to perform an exorcism on Cecilia Pistorini. They restrain her and they gather around her and immediately Cecilia begins screaming so loud, so guttural. She speaks in another language and seems angry. It's like a man's voice coming out of her. And then she would look at the other nuns and smile with her eyes wild. And she'd start laughing hysterically. (laughs) 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 And... (laughs) and the nuns pray over her harder and harder and the room fills with the smell of sulfur and cecilia speaks out loud he comes for me and the exorcism continues for the entirety of the day but as the clock struck 4 p.m something strange happened one nun aside from cecilia began laughing and slowly so too did the others There was a cacophony of the nuns laughing in hysteria. (laughs) I'm really enjoying this. It's like a Halloween tale. But it happened in real life. So that's terrifying. Uh, Okay, so they all thrust their heads back in laughter. And the women who were not consumed and conflicted by this hysteria were watching and horrified and were like, oh, my gosh, this all of these women are now possessed and they watch on as the women who are laughing, their eyes turn black like something else had taken over their souls. And there was one nun who began slamming her head into a wall over and over and over and over. And she splits her head open and starts gushing blood. And so the other nuns who are not laughing or possessed grab her, restrain her, but she's like gushing blood. They she doesn't die, but it just it reminds me of Rick and from Dominus and how yeah. when she drove by, she saw him slamming his head against the brick. Right. Well, because at first at the beginning, I mean, just a minute ago when you were describing all of them laughing together, I was like, oh, okay, well, like 
you know, it makes sense. It's like when one person starts laughing at a mm-hmm. bus or airplane or something and they're just truly, truly laughing and then everyone right. else catches the laughs and I was like, oh, there's got to be some psychological explanation, some sort of group think sort of thing, but to bash your head in. Yeah. Ugh. But these are women who are very committed to what they do and and they are in a scenario where they're really truly trying to help Sister Cecilia because she's possessed. That is not the time to laugh. And I can't imagine a group of very devout and prayed to God their entire lives have committed themselves to it. I don't believe that they would just start laughing in the middle of an exorcism. It's not. Yeah. It doesn't. And exorcism happen. is not the right place to be laughing. No. And it doesn't seem like some people do have reactions. I would admit that myself sometimes. I have reactions that when you're just so shocked or you don't know how to respond to something, you react yeah, the way that you shouldn't. Right. Either by laughing when you feel uncomfortable or whatever. But an exorcism is such an extreme case. Right. And it's so scary to be witness to mm-hmm. it that that doesn't seem like something where you would just be like, I feel uncomfortable, so I'm just going to let out a giggle. No. no, no. And I think it's very clear at this point that this is a mass possession. And so all of the unaffected nuns are watching in horror and they continue to try praying louder and louder. And all of a sudden they look over to Cecilia and see her levitating on the bed, her laughter echoing louder than all the others. And in a guttural voice, she spoke, he's here. Oh, God. And so then by the end of the exorcism attempt, because it didn't work, nine more women were writhing on the floor like snakes, their bodies convulsing. There were now 10 nuns possessed. And this possession had been so taxing on Sister Cecilia that she neared the end of her life. And so she was on her deathbed. And just for a moment, there was a glimmer of her old self. And she looked at a nun who was watching over her. And she spoke very softly. She's a witch. Sister Maria. She's a witch. And moments later, sister, sister. Leia did not like that. Leia was like, no. No, not a witch. Not a witch, mom. Not another one. Not another witch. Not here. I do bring a lot of ghost stories in this place. And Leia's like, I just don't want to see any more ghosts. <laughs> I know Leia's the one that's really got the short yeah. end of the stick here. Yeah, she sees all of them. Okay, so moments later, sister Cecilia Pistorini dies. And the nuns who were not affected were like, we have to take Sister Cecilia's accusation very seriously. There's clearly something bad happening. Someone brought it into this convent. And if Cecilia accuses Maria as a witch, like we have no reason not to believe her. And after all of the mass accusations in Europe, they, were, they had no reason not to believe that Maria was a witch. Um, and so they accuse Maria, which then means... But a higher spiritual power, a.k.a. there's like this group of people, I'm sure, like the government, who then interrogates her and decides whether or not she is guilty. She was found guilty on the accounts of being a witch, colluding with the devil to possess the women at the convent It was con- and was condemned to death. She was to be beheaded and then burnt at the stake on June 21st of 1749. The belief was that burning her body after the mass, after the beheading would perish the evil from the world. And so on June 21st of 1749, Maria stood before a crowd of people who booed her, who threw trash at her, but it didn't seem to bother Maria. 
Maria just stood there. It's just so disturbing, too, because it's still her physical body, even if she is possessed. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't you still try to save her? Yeah. She's somewhere. You would think. Or, I mean, this is the thing. I don't think they believe that she was possessed. I think they believe that she was a witch. Truly was a witch. Doing the devil's work and was like doing it because she wanted to and enjoyed it. Okay. But we'll get to that because I think there's there's definitely more to the story. So Maria just stands there awaiting her death. She looks down and starts muttering a few words. Was it prayer? Was it praying to the devil? Was it to God? Was she citing was she reciting a like a, a curse of some kind? I don't know. But before we talk about her death, let's talk about her life because I think Maria Whether she was possessed or not, whether she was a witch or not, I think it's up for debate. But her life was very difficult. And similar to the chilling adventures of Sabrina, Maria had signed her name in the Book of the Devil. Mm -hmm. And she had spent, then she went to the convent at 19. So, like, was she truly trying to turn over a new leaf and, like, and commit herself to God? And was the devil doing this all in an act of revenge? Or was she a faithful servant of the devil? We don't know. But when, Maria was six years old. I said that she moved to that town of Linz, which is where they believe she was introduced to the occult. And at seven, she didn't know that what was wrong. Six or she was six or seven. Like at that age, you're so naive and you have no idea what's right from wrong. And the people who are around you are the ones who are going to help you learn life. And if the people around you are introducing you to witchcraft and to giving your soul over to the devil, that's what you're going to think is correct. You're, that's your reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so her parents were really busy with work. And so she spent a lot of time with different people in the town. And so she must have loved the attention and and, and the attention given to her were by witches. And, and they lured her and seduced her and promised her that she could get everything she ever dreamt of. This was the way to do it. The only way to get everything you ever wanted was by following the path of the devil. And so by 12 years old, Maria had signed her name in the book of the devil. And after that, she was fully committed. She dated boys who helped deepen her love for the devil. And she began working as a sex worker, indulging in what at that time was thought of as morally wrong. But she had spent 60 years of her life at this convent. So how, why didn't she possess the people later in life or earlier? Like she joined there at 19. Why didn't she enact her plan when she was 19? Why did she wait until she was 70 years old to do it? Mm -hmm. And how can they be sure it was her? Like, was she really the daughter of the devil? Was it the revenge against Maria? Like, had Maria gone? Like I said, did she turn over a new leaf? It's so confusing. I have no idea. But so when she was 12 and like before she turned 19, she was just kind of in her parents' eyes and in the government's eyes. And just based on that time, she was just being a crazy, reckless woman doing things that women shouldn't be doing, probably wearing lipstick. And it got to the point that her parents forced her to go to Kloster Unterzell. And this could be all a story that maybe the people made up after they accused her of being a witch. And they're like, well, yes, like, look at all this history. She became a witch at age six. Or maybe it's true. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And maybe she was working with the devil. And we also understand that the devil would love to enact a plan against a convent because that's kind of like a big F you to God. He's Yeah, that's taking down the enemy. Right. And and maybe it was such a long con of like, let's get Maria in there. And it was actually part of the plan. So yes, her parents forced her to go, but the devil's like, This is great. 
they're feeding into the plan. Like, let's send you to the convent mm -hmm. and just slowly break down everyone, get you to the highest point, which then, because yes, she could have done it when she first got there, but it wouldn't be as big of an F you to God. But if she got so high in the ranks, got so close to God and then did it, it's even better for the devil. What a great deal. He's like, hell yes, got my job done. And so, yeah, so it's just like, there's so many different scenarios that it could have been was, but if Maria was six or seven, she was totally seduced and lured by the devil. And I don't think it's fair to her. We could have, someone could have helped her. Like you said. Yeah. But unfortunately, she was executed. And as the executioner was ready to behead Maria, she glances upwards, looks at the crowd and her eyes empty. And for the first time, they see a glimmer of a woman they had never seen before. So like the devil had left her body. Oh, wow. And then- Wait, why? Was it because does he have to leave the host before the host is killed? I don't know. I mean, similar to Cecilia, like she had a moment of being herself and accused Maria of being a witch before she died too. So like, do they already have their souls at that point? Or are they? do they have to leave to then catch the soul as it leaves the body? I don't know. I really don't. And then the blade drops and her head separated from the rest of her body. And the crowd cheered and chanted, the witch is dead. And the executioner took Maria's lifeless head and put it on a stake, which would then be displayed as a warning to all others who practice witchcraft. But when the executioner put her head on the stake, something strange happened. A devious smile appeared on her face, which had not been there when she was first beheaded. It was as if there were moments of life left after her beheading, and it just put a grin oh. on her face. Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. I know. That's so scary. Yeah. The case and death of Maria Renata traveled back to the Vatican and it outraged Pope Benedict XIV, who was the Pope at the time. And in his outrage, he helped put an end to all of this hysteria and the end to accusations of witchcraft and the executions of witches. I put in quotes because they're not all witches. And so the time of accusing men, women, and children of practicing witchcraft started to come to an end. And so Maria Renata was, if not the last, she was one of the last witches ever executed in Germany. But Maria's death, and as they said, they wanted to burn her body to get rid of all the evil, but her death did not do that because at the convent for years and years later, many of the nuns were experiencing the same convulsions, the same possession symptoms for years. So whatever evil was lurking in that convent, it was still there. So does that mean it came from Maria or did it mean it came from something else? We have no idea. Yeah, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. And throughout time, religion changed like their, you know, history, all that stuff. And so the convent was closed and then the building was used for other purposes like a school, a boarding house. And all the people who ever entered that building, all of them felt a darkness. And some saw the apparition of a weeping woman, which could it be Maria? Could it be Cecilia or both? Because some would also see a darker form and some people would hear whispering of dark thoughts in their ears. And after World War II, the cluster was destroyed and all that was left were a few crumbling walls. And decades later, the, the Unterzell Monastery was built on the land and it's this beautiful place of worship meant to be a place where someone can connect with God get closer to him but the land holds the dark secrets of the past and it's said that visiting late at night one will become so overwhelmed with fear that it will make you scream and that 
The spirit of Maria Renata is believed to be haunting the land nearly 300 years after her death. Some people think that she's plotting revenge, or maybe she likes whispering these dark thoughts into visitors' ears. Or maybe it's not her, but it's still the devil who's lurking on that land. So spooky. Yeah. I wonder if anybody has had experiences since going back, you know? Yeah. Like if if it's haunted in any way, just with maybe the spirits of the accused or possessed right. or just those who were scarred by the events. I have no idea. We'll have to go visit it. No. <laughs> I'll force oh, you my there. nightmare. Yeah. Well, I had nightmares about it last night just after doing research, so I definitely don't want to go there. <laughs> but it's yeah. one of those i'm surprised i didn't have a nightmare last night because i went and saw us and then i watched hereditary <laughs> oh my god you watched both in one night yeah i didn't finish hereditary though because it's long yeah so. yeah i'll finish it tonight and then you'll have nightmares tonight yeah so spooky what a fun topic i like I this topic yeah i feel like also with all the movies like the nun and the conjuring 2 and we've talked about like how possessed nuns are almost more terrifying or demons that present themselves as nuns are so terrifying because it's this symbol of religion and symbol of like closeness to God that mm -hmm. is thrown in your face. So you feel like you should be trusting it, but it has so much evil emanating from it that it's it's probably more horrifying than anything. It's it's scary. I don't <laughs> even know what to say. Yeah. There's nothing left to say. It's just it's a terrifying thing. And to be the subject of any of this would be horrifying because what we've heard or what we read is that the person, it's up to those around them to try to help them, but very rarely can the person fight hard enough themselves. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What did you do? I'm doing the Borley Rectory. I'm not familiar. Which is considered to be the most, one of the most haunted houses mm. in England. It doesn't really exist today, but it sat on the border of Essex and Suffolk. And in 1863, there was a house built and Reverend Henry Bull and his 14 children. I'm sorry. And staff members. Say what? Well, okay. I do have to say that when I was reading it, it said 14 children and staff. So I'm not sure if that means 14 children or 14. Right. That's hard. The wording of that. Including staff and children. But I kind of think it was 14 kids. Yeah. It could be either. But I think they people had lots of kids back in the day. They did. They did. Just pop them out. And obviously this guy was rich, rich because he moved into this big ass house with a bunch of kids and whole staff. Right. So they move in and almost immediately things start happening in this house. Oh, no. And at first, everything seemed kind of benign. It was just like footsteps here and there, tapping noises, etc. Nothing they couldn't live with. <laughs> but soon things started picking up and Reverend Bull began asking around town about the land where his home now stood. And this is what he found out, supposedly, back in the 13th century. This land housed a monastery. And a young nun and a young monk met, and they quickly fell in love. And instead of remaining devout to God, they sought to marry each other and break their vows. Oh, no. But unfortunately, they were caught before they could marry each other. And the monk was taken, and he was hanged. And the what? nun wasn't – she wasn't spared in her punishment either, 
within her own convent, they locked her in a room and bricked up the room. So <gasps> presumably she died of starvation and Oh my gosh. Horrible. Horrible. It reminds me of the Congress Hotel in Chicago and how they there was like the possessed yes. girl and they locked her in the room. Yes. Yes. That's so horrifying. Uh-huh. I had no idea that there were such drastic punishments for falling in love. Yeah. And isn't it interesting, too, that it's like you're taking something, you're you're punishing someone who's of religion in a religion that's supposed to be, that advertises itself as, like, loving people and doing good and, you know, confessing your sins and trying to be better. And then because this person is like, oh, well, I want to break my vow and I'm no longer married to God. I want to be married to this man. They're like, well, the most logical thing now is to murder you. Yeah, I I think nowadays that's like 100% true. They wouldn't do that. But I think back in the days, it's like breaking an oath is probably the worst thing you could ever do. Yeah, but they were there. It just doesn't make sense to me because they themselves, like the punishers were then breaking. One of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill or murder. Yeah, but was it in the clause of like, if you break your vow or your oath, like this is what will happen to you? Did they know? Perhaps, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying I'm not maybe. talking. Yeah. And I'm not talking about the act. I'm talking about the people doing the act. Right. Yes. Like it doesn't but matter you, if someone knew the punishment or what the punishment is. Yeah. The whole thing is, is that someone has to do that punishment to the other person, which right. goes against everything. And so then are they excused from thou shalt not kill? But I killing just don't was such it. a thing. Like everyone killed everyone back then. And it was like, execute this person, execute this person. It was just like. Yeah. I watch Game of Thrones. I should know yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, but it was very upsetting. So they basically couldn't be together and they were murdered because of it. Wow. And rumor has it the nun and the monk's spirits were still on the property haunting the Borley Rectory or the Borley House area, searching for one another but never being able to be together. Oh, that's so sad. So sad. So upsetting. It's like you searching for Bigfoot and never being oh, able to be why, together. Why can't you find me? <laughs> I need to hang out by the woods more often. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so the family who had moved in, Reverend Henry Bull and all of his kids and staff, they're like, okay, this is starting to make sense because we've been hearing all of this stuff and there's definitely paranormal activity. So I guess we understand. And then that also explains why we've been seeing an apparition of a nun walking around oh. the property it's just so like I, I know she's a nun but it's just so scary so scary so sometimes she walks around with her head down along the property just seemingly upset and looking for someone that's typically how she appears and then sometimes her face would appear actually looking in the windows of the house. So that uh, sounds like a super scary experience, I'm sure, to, to yes. be inside and see this ghostly apparition peering in your windows. But she's but it, just looking for her love. Yeah, it sounds like she was just looking for her lost soulmate. Okay, so, and this wasn't, the other thing is it wasn't just like, ooh, a scary nun appearing at night, like lurking through the property. No, she would come out during the middle of the day. She was just walking around in broad daylight, moping around the property. And anyone who tried to approach her wouldn't get very far because as soon as someone tried to walk up to her, she would just vanish. Oh. So I guess the family, Reverend Bull and his family, were not too phased because they actually, and this is, I think, hilarious, 
they built a summer house on the property, just set a little bit far away from the main house (laughs) to use after dinner to go smoke cigars and to watch the nun who would normally walk the path right nearby where they built the house. What? Yeah, just some after dinner. Let's go grab a drink. Let's go smoke some cigars and we can watch the nun wander. There are so many things about that that are funny to me. The fact that they made a summer house on their home property. Like you <laughs> you clearly have the money to build a house. Why not do it in a place that is not where you live? They probably honestly they probably had 12 other houses. Yes. And then the whole cigar thing. Typical men. It's interesting. It's an interesting choice. I respect it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just different than the way most people respond to paranormal activity in their home. Yeah. So not only was there a nun on the property, but the family also experienced a phantom coach led by horses coming up the driveway. And they don't know why. It's definitely unrelated. But I wonder, although it could be if like perhaps the nun and the monk were about to get into the coach when they were caught. Maybe. I don't, I'm not familiar with modes of transportation right. in the 13th century. What Me did people neither. do back then? I think probably coaches. Okay. Well, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But, but anyway, there's a coach and everyone's like, we don't get it, but it's there. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of other spirits that are on the property that maybe don't have a backstory that people are aware of. But Reverend Bull's son, Harry, who was one of the cigar smokers hanging out in the back, Mm -hmm. inherited the house, and he lived there until he died in 1927. So the family clearly didn't really care about the paranormal activity. They were like, it's our house, whatever, we can all share. Right. So some 70 years after the house was originally constructed, and a year after Harry's death, it's now 1928, and a new family moves in. It's Reverend Guy Smith and his wife, and almost instantly they see two ghosts who they believe are probably the monk and the nun. They're hearing things that weren't necessarily, well, just weren't reported from the last family. So it was not sure if this was new activity or maybe if the last family just didn't hear it. But they're hearing the ringing of service bells and they're seeing Uh odd lights coming from outside. So it's... It seems because the first family who moved in had a bunch of servants. So I wonder if somehow the land just absorbs the energy of anyone who really spends a lot of time there and does some sort of like residual haunting, whether or not the person passed away or not. Hmm. But anyway, so there's all of this new activity happening on top of all the old activity that's always been going on. Wow. So rumor has it, Mrs. Smith, the wife of the, the reverend who just moved in, found a skull, a human skull, in one of the rectory's cupboards. (gasps) So it makes you wonder what happened with the previous tenants because the monastery that was rumored to be on the property hundreds of years ago had already been demolished and the new house was built. So it's not as if anyone who wasn't a part of that group for like the 70-some years who had moved in Mm -hmm would have i don't know what i'm saying i already got lost in my sentence but basically it had to have been related to the last family the first group to have ever moved in or it could have been the people who built the home like well i believe what we said i think the rich guy did reverend bull but i mean like the construction builders like the actual builders of the of that building oh perhaps perhaps or maybe maybe some servants got in a fight and one of them killed the other and that's why you hear the ringing bell oh we don't know. But in June of 1929, so this is just 
a year after they move in, the Smith family contacts the newspapers and they're like, yo, we need help. This house is haunted. And they're focusing, the newspapers are focusing on the phantom footsteps, the images of a headless man, a girl in white, the homes builder, the ghost nun, a phantom coach, odd lights, ghostly whispers, just like all this stuff. It's just Mm -hmm. adding up and adding up all these spirits and sightings and noises happening. So the newspapers are like, whoa, Borley Rectory is pretty haunted. Yeah. Let's shout out Harry Price. So naturally, Harry Price becomes involved, who might sound a little familiar because Mm -hmm. I covered him in episode 68 and we did Ghost Hunters. Yes. Yeah. Just as a quick refresher, he's the guy that was basically credited with coming up with the idea of ghost hunting kits. Yes. Yeah. So he becomes involved. He's a British psychic researcher and author, and the family requests his help. So Harry goes... He's asked to investigate. And while a lot is going on at this place, the most well-known spirit is that of the nun. So that's kind of the focus of the investigation and really the focus of many stories when it comes to the Borley Rectory because she's mm-hmm. the most present. Okay. So Harry, our British psychic, is listening to the story, the backstory of the nun, the supposed murder between just because her and the mug wanted to get married. And he's like, ah, sounds like a made-up story. This whole love affair. I don't know. But I guess I'll go check it out anyway. So he goes. And I'm sure he's very grateful that he did because this case really put him on the map and made him known as a successful ghost hunter. Okay. So Harry goes to Borley Rectory and he investigates the haunting. And what was once a haunting, just a normal, I guess if you can call it normal with dead nuns looking in your windows a normal haunting escalates to poltergeist activity once harry is present in the home so maybe he was a trigger to the home maybe he brought something else with him whatever the case when harry was there things picked up and objects flew across the room there were loud tapping noises on the walls bells rang really loudly and aggressively and everyone's like whoa what's going on this was normal before you came harry do you think it's like entities that are like just acting up because of the fact that Harry was there and maybe Harry would then be a person who would bring in someone to get rid of the entity so it just began acting up more? Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, perhaps. It's interesting because they didn't have any poltergeist activity before, so yeah, maybe someone was just triggered by Harry or maybe Right. Maybe there was something that was already attached to Harry, and then maybe all the other spirits were like, hell no, this guy, this new guy can't stay here with us. And so they started getting a little crazy. Who knows? Hmm. But whatever happened, happened. And Harry starts interviewing a bunch of people who had been in and around the house, and he collected a ton of ghost stories about the Borley Rectory. And Harry eventually leaves the rectory. He doesn't really know what's going on. He never really solved why all this paranormal activity was happening. Mm -hmm. But as soon as he leaves, the activity slows back down to its original state. So many people are like, okay, Harry made up that whole story. He made up that extra activity in the home just to make for a better story. He was already kind of in hot water at the time and people were trying to discredit him and his work. So they were like, oh, yeah, he totally made that up. But even Harry himself was like, I don't really understand what's going on. 
I don't know why there's poltergeist activity and I don't know the reasons behind it. So it wasn't as if he was really trying to be like, this is what it is. But anyway, people still put some blame on him. Well, that's what people do. We always find reasons to not believe someone because we don't want to believe it or you just, yeah. The same with like not wanting to take blame for things. It's just, yeah, you project onto others. And he, I mean, it wasn't exactly normal to be a paranormal investigator back then. So exactly. He was an easy target for a lot of people. So the same year that this is done, the Smiths are like, I'm out. I'm moving out. We're done. Mm -hmm. So the next year, Reverend Lionel Foister, I think is how you say the last name, his wife and his daughter, they move into the house. His wife, Marianne, becomes the target of all of the spirits in the house. All I see is Leia's little button <laughs> anus just right in the video. She's just trying to figure out where he's comfortable. Just booty backing <laughs> up. So his wife, Marianne, starts becoming the target. The spirit takes a special liking to her. And some unusual stuff happened in the house. But the family would also find messages written for Marianne. Like, the spirits were writing down (gasps) stuff for Marianne. The messages, two of the messages went like this. Marianne, please help get. And then, Marianne, light mass prayers. (gasps) And in addition to these messages, the activity that Harry had explained when he was investigating the house back when the previous tenants were living there started to pick up again when the foisters moved in. Objects were flying through the home. Rocks would come out of nowhere and whiz towards the family. And windows would just shatter, just shatter suddenly, which is not normal paranormal activity. That's usually always associated with demonic activity. That's wild. And like the escalation of these hauntings is so mysterious. Mm -hmm. And Marianne had also claimed to be physically attacked. So there was... There's a bunch of stuff on her physical attacks, but I didn't write it down because she later admitted to trying to blame the ghost for the markings on her body, which she actually received from an extramarital affair that she was having. Oh, was he abusive? I think she was just getting a little rough and dirty. Oh, okay. That's better. Yeah. People cruise easily. Yeah. Sometimes. True. I don't know. But yeah, so she was any markings that people were like, how'd you get that? She was like, oh, gosh, I was like shoved into a wall and pushed down the stairs. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe he was abusive. Harry Price was like, mm, I think the poltergeist activity picked up again, maybe because of Marianne's secrecy and her affair. And hmm. also, I was thinking that perhaps maybe the notes were from the nun who was pleading with Marianne to be better, to act better, to maybe not anger any other spirits in the house with her indiscretion. See, I interpreted it totally differently. I interpreted that the ghosts were like, help us. And like, like something dark is here and we're trying to, it's taking over our souls. Yeah. Okay. Let me read, let me read them back to you now. Okay. Marianne, please help get, which could be Marianne, please get help. Meaning it could have gone okay. like, please get help, like help us or like, go get help, girl. Like, this is not normal. You right. should not right. be in the situation you're in. In Marianne, light mass prayers. I took that as pray for your sins and pray for forgiveness. And I took it as pray for us. 
So I guess there's no answer. <laughs> Yet we don't again. Know. Yeah. Okay. So the foisters are like, ah, after a few years of this, we should probably leave. So they lasted longer than I think the previous tenants, but they still left. And once they do so, Harry Price sees an opening and he's like, okay, before anyone else moves in, I'm going to get a huge team of 40 some volunteers to begin a year long, round the clock paranormal investigation of this home which I think I mentioned in the episode I did on him. But right, yeah. this is the place that led him to writing the first ever handbook on how to conduct a paranormal investigation. Mm. And during this stay, the investigators made contact with the spirit who may have told them exactly what they needed to solve the mystery of the nun haunting. That's the best kind of spirit, one that just gives mm-hmm. you all the information. Right? It must have been thrilling. <laughs> so a spirit named Marie Laurie came through, and she was a nun from France, but she had left her convent to go marry Henry Waldegrave, who was a member of a wealthy family, and this wealthy family had lived on the property where the Borley House or the Borley Rectory now stood. Oh. And Marie told these paranormal investigators through the Ouija board that basically her husband strangled her and buried her in the cellar of the old home. So this oh may gosh. have solved the ghost nun theories surrounding her death. Right. Because she was a nun. Like, this, she, this was real. This woman was a uh-huh. nun. So five months after meeting Marie through the spirit board, another mm-hmm. spirit comes through to the investigators and warned them that the home would burn down that very night and in the rubble of the fire, they would find proof of Marie's murder. Oh, my chills. Yes. And everyone's like, holy shit, this is wild. But the house didn't burn. So they're like, hmm, maybe this hmm. ghost doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's all talk. So it didn't happen. But 11 months later, a new resident is moving into the house. And he's unpacking his books. And in doing so, he's a little clumsy and he tips over his oil lamp which then ignites the books and burns the whole house to the ground very quickly. I'm so sad for the books. So sad for the books. And this guy who just bought the home. (laughs) My gosh. Did they have insurance back then? I hope. I doubt it. (laughs) Ask your dad. Yeah, Bill Bill Allstate. (laughs) So Price and his team, Harry Price and his team were like, oh, my God, it happened. It burned to the ground. We have to go look for bones or look for any sort of proof. And so they go and they're digging amongst the rubble and they actually do find some small bones that they bring and upon like bring back with them. Mm -hmm. And upon further investigation, the bones are identified as belonging to a young adult female. So that again connects to the story of the nun being murdered on the property i just i wonder how the other version of the story then came to be like how did that like did her husband who killed her or the man who killed her did he create that other story as an excuse maybe or maybe it was just the locals they saw a nun walking around so they came up with this story and having seen other people or spirits roaming around maybe they saw someone who they thought was a monk and then they created this sort of backstory i mean it's how any how any folklore is started. It's That's true. You want to find a story to the mystery. Yeah. Yeah. So 
They find the bones and they're like, oh my God, this has got to be her. So in an attempt to free her, to help her and her spirit move on, they gave the bones a proper Christian burial. And the nun's spirit has never been seen again. Oh, wow. But the Borley Rector is not only famous for the nun and for the haunting surrounding the property, but also for a photo captured there that everyone can go Google. Or we can post on our Instagram. We can, if we remember. You remember things better than me. I never remember the promises I make on this podcast. Oh, you know, I'm going to put a note to myself right now and I'll post it on (laughs) Tuesday. So there were a series of photos taken during the final demolition of the Borley Rectory. And these photos were published in Life magazine back in 1944. And in one photo, you can see what they refer to as like the floating brick. Because it looks like there's just a brick seemingly floating, levitating midair in a doorway. And so some people were like, oh, my God, it's a spirit. They were holding up the brick. And other people were like, no, it was probably just a worker in the area who happened to throw the brick at the same time the photo was taken. But it's mm. one of those photos that's up for debate and people, I mean, it's it's a site where a lot of paranormal activity has pretty much been proved to be happening. So people are like, well, it's not, it's not a long shot that a ghost picked up a brick. Right. Yes. So that is the Borley Rectory in the house at the center of many now known ghost hunting wow. techniques and the inspiration behind many books and stories. Wow. I love that there was like a final resting place for this woman and that there was closure to the hauntings. Right. Because it was centuries, centuries that she was haunting that place. Moping and around I wonder- the yard. I mean, for God's sakes, the first family, just instead of figuring out how to help her, they set up a little hut for them to go spend warm summer nights smoking cigars and watching her moping watching around her. trying to find peace. Well, I have a lot of questions. Like, was she the one who was amplifying the poltergeist activity and the the activity in the home to get Harry's attention or to get people to do something for her? Or were, were there other entities there? Or it, there's just so many questions. Yeah. But I do like that there was an end to it. Right. And there were definitely other spirits there. There were a ton of a ton of spirits that people saw, but really the nun was the most popular yeah. and most well-known spirit of Borley Rectory. And I really like that she's not a scary nun because I really thought she was going to be. No, she's nice little – we have yeah. a nice balance this episode. Right. Freaky and then sad but also sweet. Sad but sweet. Okay, I have a listener ghost story. Let's hear it. This is from Marisa, and it's called My Best Friend's Ghost and a Demonic Nun. Hey, ghoul friends. My name is Marisa. I've been listening to the podcast for a while now, and I've known since episode one that I'd have to send you guys some of my stories. In short, I have quite a few. I've always been more on the sensitive side and have experienced things for quite a while now. According to my mom, I was born at three in the morning with the veil over me, which if you don't know, is another sign of luck or psychic abilities. So was it destiny or a curse? You guys decide. I have a few stories I think you'll both enjoy. My first one is something I've considered to be demonic. Even remembering it kind of freaks me out, to be honest. This was not an in-person experience, but rather a dream world one. So here goes nothing. I've never really been one of those kids that are afraid of the dark. In fact, I've always felt like I've been the opposite. 
but I had a couple of months where I was unusually uneasy whenever it was time for the lights to go out at night. So fast forward to one night, I was asleep and I had this dream that was so real, I felt like I was watching a movie. I found myself in an older building, maybe made entirely of stone. There was a woman with me in an unfamiliar room and I was trapped and I could only see her from the corner of my eye, no matter how hard I tried to turn to see her. From what she would show me, however, she wore a longer dress, it was gray and conservative, and she had a headpiece on, like that of a nun, but not quite the same. Her hair was long and dark, and she had no eyes. And the more I tried to face her, the more angry she would get. Finally, she reached out for me, and I remember her feeling cold, but the to the point of it burning, like holding dry ice. I knew she was not something of this world, and I've always heard to not fear spirits as it gives them more power. So I told her very calmly and sternly that I didn't allow anything around me that wasn't of light, love, and positivity, and as soon as I spoke with her, she was gone. And I woke up completely on my own with my cat standing guard at the foot of my bed, but I never heard from her again, thankfully. My second story has a better ending and definitely no demons. To begin... I unfortunately lost my best friend when I was in 10th grade to suicide. His name was Nikolas, and we'd been down a very long road together, as we both have had our own battles with depression and anxiety, along with other things. I've gotten messages from him since the moment he passed, and there hasn't been a week that goes by that I don't get a sign from him. The night of his passing, I got a call from another one of our friends, Ellie, around 12, telling me what happened. I was obviously rattled and upset. At the same time, I felt like it wasn't necessarily a surprise, knowing his worsening mental conditions. I turned on my music and tried to sleep, and the first song that played was Nightingale by Demi Lovato, and ever since, that has been the song I associate with him. One of those days, a few months after, I was in my car, it was raining, and my passenger side airbag light had just turned off, which usually only happens if someone is sitting in the seat, but I was alone. I said his name and I swear I saw him in my back seat through my rearview mirror. Ooh. Which is which naturally scared the living shit out of me. Yeah. After that, I told him to stop scaring me and it wasn't funny even though I figured he was getting a kick out of it. A few moments later, Nightingale by Demi Lovato played on the radio, making me do one of those ugly dramatic cries as I continued driving home. The next and clearest experience I've ever had with him was in a dream. I was in a large neon penthouse but not like a crack den, much more of the bougie millionaire penthouses where it was just him and I, but he had aged since the last time I saw him and he sat me down in his living room and he apologized for leaving everyone. In particular, he asked me to tell my friend Ellie, same from earlier, to please forgive him and he hoped she would understand he wasn't being selfish, but he was exhausted. I woke up soon after and I immediately told her what happened to which she said she really needed to hear that. He has shown up so many other times while I'm in emotional distress, and he will always be a protector in my eyes. And I know he's never too far from me. Uh, I could definitely go on and on about ghosts. I definitely have way more stories that are much shorter if you guys ever want to follow up. I seem to be quite a haunted person, as spirits never seem to leave me alone. And having y'all's <laughs> podcast gets me even more excited about the paranormal. So thanks for all you do. Stay spooky and see you on the other side. Marisa, P.S. I have an Etsy store called Moon Child City, and I would love to send you both dream catchers that I make. <gasps> yes. So cool. Thanks, Marisa. Okay. Where where to begin? Because she starts out with a demonic nun, but then ends with a wonderful story of a visitation from her friend. So they're yeah. two very contrasting stories. Well, the demonic nun one, I think similar to what I was saying earlier in the episode about how 
dark entities kind of take on the pers- they give you the perception of something that's seen typically as a helpful, peaceful version of yes, like a child or like a nun, a nun, yeah, or perhaps yeah. maybe the nun was Sister Marie Renata, and the devil is now having her do his work in dreams. Oh God. I don't know. I mean, it could be like if he possessed so many nuns and got their souls, like you could assume then that he's putting them out and making them do his work. I just don't like the part where the nun is like reaching Uh, out for Marisa. And it's cold. I feel like I'm reaching out for you right now. Yeah, I'll reach out back for you. Come with me. Is that how we're just touching each other now? Yeah. Through the computer. I very badly need to paint my nails. Me too. It's fine. But I do really like her experience of... I feel like a lot of people, when someone passes, there's always one song or one yeah. scent or one place that reminds you especially of that person. And for that song to come on right after she thought that she saw her friend, uh-huh. it was like just the the biggest sign ever. And I, I like that. I would like to think that he put it on after she was like, whoa, don't scare me. That was really spooky. Don't just appear in my mm-hmm. seat of my car. I like to think that he was like, okay, well, I'll just start playing this song and then she'll know. So let me put it on now so that she knows Mm -hmm. that this is now my sign instead of just trying to appear myself. (laughs) It must be so difficult to be a spirit because you have the stereotype of being scary and spooky and it is off-putting to see something that isn't here appear. But they, yeah, especially Nicolas's spirit, he has such good intentions. Right. You're trying to gauge yeah. How much you can do or what you should do. Yeah. So I do like that he's found, especially in the dreams, like he can talk to her that way. And then also playing this song, I really, I think that's special. I have a story from Laura. Okay. This is called My Friend Joe. Okay, ladies, this is so strange to write out. This will be a long one. So don't feel like you have to share. Here we go. Here we go. We're sharing. Let's do it. Let's start with a backstory. I have lived with my parents nearly my whole life. They are incredibly religious, and I grew up going to church three or four times a week. I'm talking for 18 years. I never really felt like I belonged in a church or in a Christian community, but I went because it was what my parents wanted me to do, and I respected that. So fast forward to today, I am 21, and I do not practice any faith. There is a big part of me that is terrified to go back to that lifestyle. Let's get on with the real story. Somewhere between 11th and 12th grade, I worked at a Christian conference center. I served in a very busy dining room. One day I was closing up and there was just a few of us left. No one was around me and I heard my name sharply whispered in my ear. So I quickly turned around and saw that there was a shadowed figure of a young boy staring at me with a cold look. Oh no. I brushed it off. But a few days later, the whisper and the boy came again. He was closer this time and I saw him three more times in two weeks. Each time, he was closer and closer. I lived in a dorm room with four roommates, and one night, I was taking a shower, and I didn't feel alone. I could feel the presence around me, and (sighs) suddenly, my water became ice, and the lights (gasps) went out. Oh, my God. I was not alone in that shower. I jumped out to discover that the light switch had not been flicked off, and moments later, the lights turned back on. Oh? I didn't think much of any of this, I was leaving for home the following day and figured whatever was following me wouldn't stick around. Weeks after being home, I hadn't experienced anything. My best friend, I'll refer to her as Jace, 
lives directly across my court. I told her about what was happening in the summer, and we both decided to play with a Ouija board. No! Now, I'm talking a cardboard and Sharpie Ouija board paired with a shot glass that we made. We played with this in my basement in a room tucked away down a long hall. That should have been our first red flag. We contacted a few spirits and it was, well, entertaining. We contacted a boy, he was 10, and he called himself Joe. He knew my name and he told me I was not safe. He said he was not a good spirit. Oh my. (gasps) We ended that visit very quickly. Things in my head started to turn and I knew Jace was putting two and two together as well. My God, I have chills. Ah! Yeah. I kept all of this to myself and I didn't even tell Jace until I started to experience things again. Over the next two months, I became so invested and intrigued in spirits, cults, exorcisms, and the demonic world. I spent all of my time reading books, articles, watching documentaries and horror movies alone and at night, and researching any bit of information I could on the topic. I started using the reading time in high school to fill my head with fucked up stories. I drew sketches of demonic creatures. I even drew symbols that I would later discover were linked to ancient demonic cults. I started incorporating spirits into my daily life. Church was a weird place to be. As soon as I sat down for the service, my head became swamped with demonic and ungodly thoughts. I hated being there. I felt uneasy at night in my room and I never felt alone, but there was nothing there. I walked downstairs one evening to grab something from our freezer room, and this room is right at the beginning of the long hallway that I had mentioned. I stared down the hall, and I was surprisingly not startled to see the boy again. He was different this time. I looked at his dark, shadowed face right in the eyes. His heavy presence just stood there. His expression was different. He had a dark grin on his face, and he was pointing at the door that we had played with the Ouija board in. Oh, I was looking at Joe. I spun around and I went upstairs right over to Jace's house. I filled her in on the past couple months and I feel as though I opened some sort of door in telling her. That night, we both woke up at 3.09 a.m. from the same dream. The dream was that we would see ourselves sleeping in our beds, but in the corner there was a thick black shadow. We couldn't wake up. Our clocks would hit 3.09 a.m. in the dream. And at that same time, we would wake up at exactly 3.09 a.m. This happened for three nights in a row. Things began to happen to me again. They came in threes, three days of heavy feeling, three things being moved around in my room, three lights flickering, three empty phone calls. But the dreams, I had them every three weeks for three months, and they would happen for three nights in a row. Jace had the same dreams each time I did, but we still told no one. Oh my gosh. Seven months had passed since I first saw Joe. I was sitting on my bed one Sunday after church and no one was home except my dad, who was in the basement. And I was laying on my bed on my stomach and I shot my head up from my phone as my hair dryer was ripped off my makeup table. <gasps> Two shirts immediately sprung from my closet like someone had pulled them aggressively. I became ice cold. I heard <laughs> footstep creaks on the hardwood floor. The only way to explain what happened next is that there was someone or something under my bed that forcefully punched me through (gasps) my mattress. I had bruises that followed and I sat up in pain and I was ice cold and spinning. And in the same moment, it felt as though someone wrapped their hands around my biceps and yanked me backwards. This exact moment, I heard the loudest bang outside of my bedroom door. 
And the next thing I remember, I was brushing my teeth, staring at my blank face in the mirror. I have no clue how much time passed or what may have happened in that time. (sighs) I immediately ran downstairs and I told my dad everything. All he could say was that we need to pray and we need to get you back in church. Being so scared by the final events, I thought going back to church was what I needed. And I thought some demon had taken me over and was trying hard to take me away from my faith. And things stopped after this. A year and a half later, I took a year-long program at a Bible college. And the first week, my pod mates and I all shared our testimonies, which are faith journeys with Christ. And I just assumed that the presence with me was a demonic spirit pulling me away from God, yet God pulling me back to him. That's how I told my story. One of the girls, who, remember, I had never met, pulled me aside afterwards and told me that she saw a heavy presence consuming the doorway, but would not come in as I spoke. This fucked with my head. After this, the sets of threes came back. Three days of heavy feeling presences. Three things being moved around my room. Three days of ice cold showers. Three days of feeling suffocated while in church. Three light flickers. Three empty phone calls. I began to have the 3.09 a.m. dreams. I told people about it this time, and it didn't stick around for a long time this time. Fast forward to today. I do not follow any walk of faith or identify as a Christian. I have not had any feelings of negative presences in my life since I was fighting to find where I belonged on this walk in line. And that's a wrap. I hope you made it to the end of my long-ass story. Love the podcast. Keep it up, chicks. Laura. Wow. That is horrifying. Yeah. And it's so interesting, too, that her best friend was looped in on it. It was almost like to scare both of them. Like, oh, you better not tell anyone what's going on because whoever you tell will just make this happen to them, too. There's there is no help you're only adding targets. Well, and also that dream reminds me so much of astral projection. Like they were seeing themselves sleeping and then in the corner was this dark entity. Mm-hmm. And that it reminds me of like the stories where when you leave your body, like insidious, when you leave your body, there's this dark entity that will then come take over right. it. And I feel like maybe that's what the entity was trying to get them to do, to leave their body so that the entity could take over. Mm-hmm. It's so scary. So spooky. I'm glad she's okay. Me too. Me too. And I hope it doesn't come back because, I mean, there was a lull between the first time and the second time. Right. But it sounds like it only advanced and got really bad when she was keeping things private. And then once she started telling people things, it didn't have as much power. So it then left, which I hope she continues to do. Yes. Me too. Wow. Well... If you have any ghost stories or have you seen haunted nuns or been to a haunted church or possibly been possessed, I don't know, anything, send us your story to our email at twogirlsoneghostpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Ashley, our mama of the BEKs, for picking this topic because it was enthralling. Very fun. And yeah. We also have social media, so you can follow us on Instagram. We have a Twitter and we have Facebook. Uh, if you join the Facebook group, there are two questions you do have to answer. And thank you to our Facebook moderators yes. who man the Facebook group and keep everything 
happy and healthy and respectful. Yes, we truly appreciate them. Also, thank you to Eric Foster at Upfire Digital for editing this episode. It saves us a lot of time and he does a great job and we really appreciate him. Also, thank you to Mallory and also the Mad Optimist for working with us and creating new merch for you guys and all of us to enjoy. You can also support us in a few ways. You guys know the spiel. Rate and review on iTunes. Tell all of your friends. Come to our live shows. Rock our merch. Mm-hmm. Donate on Patreon, etc., etc. And we will see you on, on the, the other, other side. side. Thank <laughs> you.